Hello and welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. We're beginning the season of Lent, and I love to quote Flannery O'Connor from her great nonfiction essay in Memoir of Mary Ann. And here's what she said. If other ages felt less, they saw more. Even though they saw with the blind, prophetical, unsentimental eye of acceptance, which is to say, of faith. In the absence of this faith now, we govern by tenderness. It is a tenderness which, long cut off from the person of Christ, is wrapped in theory. When tenderness is detached from the source of tenderness, its logical outcome is terror. It ends in forced labor camps and in the fumes of the gas chambers. Marianne was dying of a huge facial cancer. She was about four years old. And Flannery O'Connor didn't romanticize it. She understood that with the difficulties that life presents to human beings, that acceptance really is the central part of faith. And so let's turn to the readings for the first Sunday of Lent and discuss how we ought to live this Lent. Every Lent begins in the Garden of Gethsemane. God creates Adam and Eve. He tells them, as you know, there's just one tree that you can't eat from. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, the Greek word for the Garden of Gethsemane would be paradesos. And to remember that Jesus promises the good thief, today you'll be with me in paradisos, in paradise. That coming back to our beginning, this is at the heart of Lent, getting rid of all the accretions of life, all the garbage that clings to our soul. And so it all begins in the story of Adam and Eve. This is where we find ourselves. And so to remind you of what you already know, uh, Satan, the, the serpent, tempts Eve. And here's what it says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took up its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. That's Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And that's a pericope from the very first reading uh, for the first Sunday of Lent this year. You know, uh, St. John in his first letter goes back to this story and he talks about the sin that the Lord Jesus comes to heal. Here's what he says in his first letter of John, chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father but of the world. And the world passes away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. That is, those who follow Christ are following the transcendent way of life that's not tied to the very temptations that Eve fell with. So in 1 John chapter 2, he talks about the lust of the eyes. Remember in the story in Genesis, the woman said that the fruit was a delight to the eyes. And then he talked about the lust of the flesh. And so the woman looked at the fruit and said it was good for food. And then John calls it the pride of life. And she says... It was, the fruit was to be desired to make one wise. And so 
in the beginning is our end, our fundamental problems as analyzed by the book of Genesis and John in his gospel. You know, St. Augustine describes this in a way that's really very helpful. He calls all sin a disordered love. Uh, and it's based on this description that comes from Genesis and 1 John. The later Christian monastic writers would talk about the seven deadly sins, and they're pretty easy to remember. So there's lust, and there's gluttony, there's avarice and sloth, anger and jealousy, envy and pride. Uh, jealousy and envy being very similar kinds of sins. So lust, gluttony, avarice, and sloth are like the sins of the flesh. Jealousy and envy, two sides of the same coin, and uh, anger are all these spiritual sins uh, that can be exacerbated by this disordered love of uh, material things we find in lust, gluttony, gluttony avarice, that's greed and sloth. Um, but when John analyzes it, he says the sins of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and uh, the pride of life. And so what's our remedy? Well, the remedy is always the same thing that Jesus says, and he says it um, in the gospel that we had on the, on the beginning of Lent at Ash Wednesday. When you fast, when you pray, when you give alms. He doesn't say if you fast, if you pray, and if you give alms. When you do these three acts of righteousness. And so consistently, in the threefold nature of sin, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, there is a threefold remedy, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. It's how we begin to bring order to the disorder in how we love. Because in every evil act we choose, we choose it because we see some good we're attaining for ourselves, just like Eve saw some good in disobeying God and eating the fruit. And so denying ourselves, practicing detachment from our money, from our appetites, from our pride as we, as we pray, uh, we learn to reel ourselves back in and learn to live within the parameters, the boundaries of what it means to be a human being. And so Jesus took that on when he entered into the temptation of the desert, which is the gospel for this first Sunday of Lent. And we're going to talk about temptation and the temptation in the desert because to understand your spiritual life is to understand what Jesus says to Peter and his disciples. Get behind me. Follow me. Look at what I do. Because the gospel, Jesus is baptized. And all the gospels, he goes into the desert where he's tempted. And my friends, when you were baptized, you immediately enter that desert. And you're in that place of temptation. And you need to know what your weapons is, what your strategy is, and what your tactics are. Let's hold on and go to the gospel. Do you remember that Flannery O'Connor quote, which I love and I started this podcast with, is that once tenderness is disconnected from the person of Christ, and we govern by tenderness, inevitably it leads to tender, I mean to terror. Why does she say that? Because Christ's life is rooted in this double nature of the world. We see God's goodness, but it's also there's this corruption and evil in the world. The best way to describe the world is like a luscious peach with a big wormhole in it. 
It's beautiful. It good. It's good. It mostly looks great, but there is something wrong. And so, when Jesus is baptized in the name of the Father, would baptize for the forgiveness of sin, and he enters into the desert. Look at the temptations that Jesus uh, undergoes. So Jesus goes into the desert where he stays for 40 days. And remember that 40 number, you're well aware of it this time, is um, a, uh, a symbol of a time of purification. Whether it's 40 days or 40 hours, it was still a testing of his vocation. And he was tested in the desert. Remember, God made it rain 40 days and 40 nights in the story of Noah that Moses wandered in the desert uh, for 40 years with the people of Israel, and all the old uh, people who came out of Egypt died, and only their children entered into the new land. The new man enters into the new land in uh, the story of the Exodus. Also, Elijah, the great prophet, um, how many days? 40 days he fasted in the desert uh, as he prepared for his prophetic journey. So, Jesus and the reference to the 40 days is a very strong reference to these Old Testament typologies. Uh, and then look at what the, the temptations are. You remember, I could read the whole reading, but you'll hear it this weekend. But I will read the part uh, where the temptations are because that's what I want to focus on. And so while he was in the desert amongst the wild beasts, then Satan comes to him. And you know, Satan... The word means, satanus means accuser. That's why I think the wisest way to understand the accusatory voice is it's not God. It's the satanic in the spiritual life. And what I want you to accept in your faith that the satanic plays a part in your spiritual life. God, just like in the book of Job, allows us to be tested. This is what the scriptures tell us. And so it makes us cling to God more fiercely. And look at what the Son of God does as he's tested. The first temptation is that Jesus will use his power to serve himself. And so here's the temptation from Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become loaves of bread. Remember, Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. That has got to make you hungry. And so this a natural desire, a natural uh, um, um, temptation based on our appetites, which are, remember the seven deadly sins? They're all temptations based on our national, na natural appetites. Sloth, our need for rest. Um, avarice, our, our need of the, the goods of this world. Gluttony, our, our misuse of, um, of food. Uh, and so when we think of the seven deadly sins, they are all just natural appetites and how we misuse them. And so Satan wants Jesus to misuse his power um, to deal with a natural appetite. And so Jesus said in reply, it is written, one does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. And so when we're faced with the, the meeting our natural appetites, um, by, uh, in sinful ways, we have to remember what the Word of God uh, tells us, you know, how we're to resist uh, our own temptation to overeat or to be lazy um, or to, you know, gather more than, more than we need. And so the second temptation um, is to perform a deed of power, uh, to jump off the top of the parapet of the temple and levitate in, in air, 
in front of all Jerusalem, and then everybody who will know who he really is. And so here's the temptation from Matthew chapter 4. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and made him stand on the parapet of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and with their hands they will support you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't test the Lord your God. Um, do it God's way. Uh, would everyone believe if Jesus levitated or would just think he was a magician? You know, people didn't believe because he performed miracles. They were attracted to him because he could do healings and he raised people from the dead. But they didn't necessarily believe in him because of it. Because, you know, it's, there's just something about human blindness and why Jesus has so many healings of the blind and the deaf that people don't see. Uh, you know, it's interesting about the second temptation, and you've heard this, that even the devil quotes scripture, because he's quoting from Psalm 91, which interestingly is a psalm of exorcism and protection from evil. It says, God will give his angels charge of you, and they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Remember, that's the exact quote that Satan uses against Jesus. But you know, when Satan quotes scripture, like most misuse of scripture, it's uh, what he leaves out. And so if you go back to Psalm 91, verses 1 to 4, here's what the entirety of that section says, including the part that Satan leaves out. Psalm 91, verses 11 through 13. For he commands his angels with regard to you, to guard you wherever you go. With their hands they shall support you, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Then you can tread upon the asp and the viper, trample the lion and the dragon. So you can see why Satan leaves that part out, the part that says that the Messiah will trample on him. But you know, it's interesting the, what the temptation also parallels between throwing himself off the parapet of the temple is all those people gathered around him in his death agony on the cross. And they said for him to come down off the cross, remember what it says in Matthew 27 and Luke and in Mark, because this is in all the Gospels. You are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. And so the temptation uh, of Satan is the very satanic temptation that's in the mouth of the people around the crucifixion. And so finally, the third temptation. And remember, the third temptation was to commit idolatry to achieve a good end. And the very first commandment of the Decalogue is, uh, the Lord is your, you shall have the Lord your God, you shall not have false gods before you. And so, bow down and worship me, the devil says, and I'll give you all the power you can use. So then the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their magnificence. And he said to him, all these I shall give to you if you will prostrate yourself and worship me. At this, Jesus said to him, Get away, Satan, it is written, The Lord your God shall you worship, and him alone shall you serve. And so how does Jesus combat Satan? Uh, devotion to the Torah, to the scriptures. So remember that the mission of the Messiah is to save the world. Um, he doesn't take short, shortcuts. He takes the way uh, that the Father is leading him on. 
And there aren't any shortcuts. It's why our lives are so circuitous. But you remember uh, about St. John in his first letter about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, how that's based on Genesis. Think about it also in how these three uh, temptations are, are, uh, are put together. So one of is the lust of the flesh, feed yourself by turning these rocks into stone. Another is the pride of life, um, and that could be the deed of power of levitation um, to get everybody to believe in him. And the third is idolatry, which is the lust of the eyes, which is uh, to, you know, to see how beautiful everything is and to want to use it for your own ends, absent God. Because in all three of the temptations, it's probably not a coincidence that they mirror the temptations in the book of Genesis and recounted in 1 John. And so as we think of the readings for the first Sunday of Lent, um, it called to a simpler uh, uh, examination of conscience. Uh, what have you let your eyes look on that they shouldn't have looked on and they've excited you? Uh, what about the flesh have you indulged that has fed uh, dark things in you? Have you misused food um, uh, for various reasons or the things of this world? Um, and then the pride of life, uh, the sense of being at the center of everything. Um, there's a lot there to think about for all of us this Lent. So why don't we bring this episode of Oral Valley Catholic to a close in the final section. Do you remember how Flannery O'Connor started out uh, her little quote on, um, on Marianne and Mystery and Manners? If others' ages felt less, they saw more, even though they saw with the blind, prophetical, unsentimental eye of acceptance, which is to say of faith. And so think of the world, the idea that we can dominate nature and that we'll make everything more perfect. From, from whose perspective? Um, killing the unborn child makes the world more perfect. Ending the life of uh, people who are demented with euthanasia makes the world more perfect. Uh, incinerating 200,000 souls in Nagasaki and Hiroshima makes the world perfect. Just go through some of the problems, the horrors of 20th century life, how different it is, and how much of it is rooted in our refusal to accept the limitations of life and to try to bend life to our own will. There are efforts to clone human beings, change genetics, get rid of children with Down syndrome. Um, all of these things are about the purification of the human person from a human perspective. It's exactly what Adolf Hitler was doing by getting rid of all the undesirables, the Jews, the homosexuals, the Romani, uh, dissident uh, Christians like uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Maximilian Kolbe. Uh, all of these things are about purity from a purely human perspective. And so the Garden of Eden, where all this starts, uh, to judge for ourselves good and evil. And what runs our understanding of what good and evil is? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of the world. Really, do you trust human beings with this kind of power? William F. Buckley, a famous conservative, said that he would rather be ruled by names chosen at random 
from the Boston telephone book that he would by the combined faculty of Harvard University. And I thought that was a sound judgment. Just take your chances on the on 10 or 20 souls pulled from the telephone book than uh, any academic uh, group of academics. So we can't really change that. And what Flannery O'Connor is saying is that we just have to accept this is the battle in the world. It's why when we follow Jesus, we follow him into our baptism. And after we're baptized, we enter into the wasteland. And there we're tempted by the very same things that every other human being is tempted by. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the, and the pride of life. All the things that if we could just have power, we can solve our problems. This, I think, is at the heart of the divisions in American culture. Um, the idea of certain people, if they can just control education, control medicine, control the media, then they can just change how human beings think. You know, the whole mentality goes back to the Lambeth Conference in the 1920s, when the Episcopalian Church was the first church to say that artificial contraception was acceptable. You know, the Pope Pius the, Pope Paul VI became very uh, uh, out of favor with liberals when uh, he uh, rejected that in Humanae Vitae. And he pointed out that our nature is a given and to separate human reproduction from the human conjugal act and to separate it from marriage was to invite and court disaster. Um, but he was fighting this huge flood, this idea of the enlightenment, that if we could just have complete control over all of nature, not just rivers and the atom, but even human nature, we could take all of nature and make it better. We could actually make uh, hell into heaven, earth into heaven. We could just change things um, by the power of science. It's a magical form of thinking. And so when Flannery O'Connor says that the faith is unsentimental, it's, bl it's blind um, to these uh, desires that we can make everything better. And it's prophetical about the dangers presented by doing so, by accepting that there's just certain things in life. So science and the promise of medical science, genetical, uh, genetical interventions or uh, genetical therapies, these are, have real promise to them. But it also reminds us of what Jesus' healings were about. Do you remember Jesus' healings just restored people to fully functioning? He made the blind see, but he didn't give them x-ray vision. He made the deaf hear, but he didn't give them the hearing of bats. Uh, he made the dead come to life, but he didn't give them life forever in this world. He cast out evil. Um, and he didn't deny evil, that the, the existence of evil. You know, to help people learn to be functional is one thing. But to get rid of people who don't function the way we want to function, um, that's just killing. And it does not make the world better. And so here we are. And we're still talking about the basic problem that came up in the Garden of Eden. Uh, and Flannery O'Connor uh, reminding us that this temptation um, to like overcome all the problems of being a human being, um, it's uh, rooted in a tenderness. 
but it's a tenderness disconnected from God's presence in the world. That's Christ. And a tenderness, she says, cut off from Christ is, quote, wrapped in theory, end quote. And when tenderness is detached from the source of tenderness, she goes on, its logical, out, logical outcome is terror. It ends in forced labor camps and the fumes of the gas chamber. Because Adolf Hitler relied on our American Medical Association when he started his eugenics campaign in Germany. Because eugenics, that is, the destruction of uh, children with learning disabilities, did not begin in Germany. It began in the United States of America. One of our great uh, jurists, Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, in a case, I think it's Skinner versus Oklahoma, I wrote a Law Review article on it, or at least an article that was I submitted to the Law Review, um, said three generations of imbeciles is enough. And so we ordered the sterilization, forcible sterilization, of, um, of this child had uh, uh, learning disabilities. Uh, we play our role in all the disorders of the world. Uh, and we as Catholics play our role in being salt, which is preserving the world, being light, shining lightness and light into dark places, um, and uh, being like a city on a hill. We may not be able to fix everything in the world. Jesus was unable to fix it, or it, you couldn't fix it without destroying human beings, which is not something apparently God is willing to do. But for us to remember that for us to speak clearly in the world, we first have to remove the beam from our own eye. That is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and um, the pride of life. And why do we give ourselves to that every Lent? In remembering that we are sinners. And before we talk about the sins of the world, we ought to at least take our own sins seriously. So maybe when you make your confession at the St. Mark Pennant Service on March 13th, I think it is, or at any of the other availabilities we have for uh, confession in our parish, why don't you think about just taking these scriptures and uh, doing an examination of conscience about what you've let your eyes take delight in, what evils there are there, how you've misused the things of this world and your lust for the things that are uh, fleshly, are pleasures of the flesh, and then how your pride has inflamed it all. And until you get on, until we all get on to our own dysfunctions, um, it's really hard to speak credibly to the world uh, in an act of love for them, in a blind, prophetical, unsentimental way that accepts there's just certain things about the world that are what they are. And to try to change them, we court disaster. So this has been another episode of Oral Valley Catholic. I wish you a happy and holy Lent. <laughs>